Grace to you and peace from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus says over Jerusalem, if you had only known what makes for peace. These are the words that Jesus spoke over Jerusalem on that first day of Holy Week as Jesus is in the midst of his triumphal procession into Jerusalem. He's heralded by those wonderful cries of Hosanna and affirmations of his kingship over the people of God. Yet amidst his triumphal march, he stops as he looks down upon the city of God and he weeps. The capital city where David had been established as king and the location of the sanctuary of God, Jesus weeps over this place. He mourns over the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. He foretells its complete destruction. And he says it's all because they did not recognize the hour of their visitation. The God that they claimed to love, the God they claimed to worship, had finally, after much promise and anticipation, come to dwell with his people, and they despised him. They rejected Jesus, they plotted to put him to death, and they denied his lordship. And because of this, the city was doomed. It did not have to be that way. The savior of the world was coming down to the city, God's grace was before them, they simply could have believed in Jesus. He made his good confession, they had seen uh, all that he had done, the case was made before them. John the Baptist preached Jesus coming into the world. Many had heard him declare, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And they were well aware of the miracles. Jesus had healed the sick. He had caused the lame to walk. He had even raised the dead. Upon hearing that Jesus had risen Lazarus from the dead, what did the people and the leaders of Jerusalem say? He must die. Above all, they had the scriptures that spoke of Jesus and pointed him out as the Christ. They had the prophetic oracles of God. They had everything that the prophets had declared about the coming Savior and how they had pointed to Christ. And so they had the prophecies, they had the miracles, they had the promises that pointed Jesus out to be their Messiah. Yet Jerusalem and her leaders wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They had hardened their hearts to their Lord when he came to them, and because of that, Jerusalem and the temple would fall. And that is because the leaders of Jerusalem lacked faith and humility. They looked at themselves and thought, I can't see how I could ever fail. You see, they'd forgotten what it means to be the people of God. They were God's chosen people. They could trace their identity all the way back to Abraham. As Abraham was God's chosen instrument to bring about a nation of people into the world from whom the Savior would come. He would be the father of the nation of people that came from Isaac. The nation would be the one that inhabited the promised land. But most importantly, from that nation would come the Savior. That was God's covenant with Abraham. And that was their calling as the people of God, to patiently wait for the coming of the Savior who would be born of their nation. Their worship, their manner of life, the peculiarity that they had to God were to mark them with that special calling. 
They were to live by faith in the promise that God was going to come down from heaven and institute his divine rule of grace immediately upon them. And they had forgotten this. The leaders of Jerusalem had forgotten that all the acts of worship, the location and the architecture and the beauty of the temple, the establishment of the royal city, and their calling as God's chosen people were to culminate in the coming of Jesus the Christ. The signs and the promises that were meant to point to Jesus had become something else for them entirely. They were no longer in anticipation of their Messiah, but they simply considered themselves to be the true church of God without him. They counted themselves invulnerable because they had Abraham as a father, because they had a temple, because they lived in Jerusalem. They thought that being God's people meant having the temple, having the priesthood, having all the things around the worship, eating the foods, having the laws. They were doing pretty well at that. Luther comments, he says, they were secure, and they vainly thought, God will do no such thing to us. We own the temple. Here himself, God dwells. Besides, we have mighty men, we have money, we have treasures, we have enough to defy all our enemies, for even the Romans and the emperor, after he had conquered the city, confessed that the city was so well built and firmly built that it would be impossible to take it. Had God not especially willed it, therefore, they trusted in their own glory, they built their own confidence on a false delusion, which finally deceived them. You see, Luther points this out, for them, being God's people had nothing to do with the Christ who was promised, and had everything to do with their status, with their wealth, with their glory. Though they claimed to be the people of God, a closer look would have revealed pride. Even as they turned the things that God had instituted as signs and symbols of the coming Savior into idols in and of themselves. So much to the point that the promised Christ comes and they want nothing to do with him. And to this, Jesus weeps. He mourns over Jerusalem. St. Paul writes to Timothy, This is the good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is Christ Jesus. Jesus' desire was that all in Jerusalem would believe in him and be saved. If they would not, they did not know what makes for peace. The destruction of Jerusalem was horrific. Flavius Josephus, he, the Jewish historian, he tells us about the event. It was the year 70 A.D. As Titus and his legions arrived, the population of Jerusalem was swollen to uh, high as maybe uh, estimates of one million people as they came to the city to celebrate the Passover. And the Roman legions sweep in and they build a wall of what they call circumvallation, a big wall around the city so that nothing could get in and nothing could get out. And the resulting famine in the city drove people to starvation, even instances of cannibalism. And finally, the Romans breached the walls around the temple complex and they burn it to the ground. And after a time of resistance, the Romans prevail. They capture the entire city, and what follows was terrible by any account, as the Romans killed and enslaved the entire population of Jerusalem. 
There was said to be so much blood of men, women, and children running through the streets that it ran like rivers and creeks. And those who survived were viewed so lowly and viewed to be so unimportant that nearly 30 slaves could be bought for a single penny. It's one of the most terrifying events in human history. And why? Why would God allow Jerusalem along with the temple to be destroyed? And the answer is, they had become idols. They no longer served their given purpose to herald and proclaim the coming of Christ our King and Savior. They were to point people to Jesus. They were to remind people of the coming Messiah so that they would look forward to the kingdom of Christ that is ruled in His grace. Instead, the people clung to these things as if they were saved simply by possessing them. They filled men with false confidence and a false sense of righteousness. Maybe this should give us time for pause and consideration. It should cause us to ask ourselves what creates, sustains, and builds faith in the people of God? And what stands at the center God's church. And Jesus answers this. He says it is his divine visitation. It's when Christ comes to make his dwelling among us. The reformers rightly assert this in their definition of the church where they say it's where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. The word of God and the sacraments that God institutes are the means in which Christ makes himself the central focus of the Christian church. He comes through the preaching of his word. He speaks to us through his holy absolution. He is truly present in the Lord's Supper as he joins himself to us also in holy baptism. Christ is present in forgiveness of sins for the sake of his people. These are the things that make for peace. And it's the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. And so often, we focus on the wrong things. A couple of weeks ago, our, our synod had its conviction. Um, it, was, it was interesting. I kind of had it running in the background in my office as I was listening to all the events around it. And there was a great deal of clamor over the fact that uh, a lot of our synodical colleges have closed since the last convention. Um, you could hear people were upset and angry, defensive. There was finger-pointing going on about the failure of these institutions. Who, who are we to let them close? And all of these other things. Yet, when we think about these things in the right manner, these institutions are set before us to serve the mission of the church, which is to set Christ before the nations so that they might believe in him and be saved. Sometimes, over time, our institutions become idols. We think of the colleges. They had the nursing programs and the ed programs and the liberal arts degrees. But when we have to ask, were they sending out servants of the gospel? Or had they become sacred cows that we were no longer willing to part with? And the fact of the matter is, God and his will saw fit to close them. There are also many other institutions, properties, and programs within the church they can become sacred cows. People begin to see the church as something other than the place where Christ makes his divine, uh, divine visitation. Sometimes they start to cling to all the institutions, the properties, the wealth, the prestige, the power. In the same way that the Jews in Jerusalem clung to the temple and the priesthood and the wealth and the status. 
And they begin to see the church as a charitable organization or uh, a school or a program or anything else. They are forgetting what makes for peace and they are putting all their stock in the things that they have built for themselves. And when the church loses sight of its chief purpose, the forgiveness of sins in the gospel of Christ, well, it is doomed to fall. Jesus knows what makes for peace. And this is why he came to Jerusalem. He comes as the peace offering. You know, the peace offering, it was one of the sacrifices that they made in the temple. It was to be an unblemished yearling lamb burnt as a whole offering to God. It was for the atonement of sins that were committed against God and the neighbor. And when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he comes to be that final peace offering. John the Baptist, as I mentioned before, rightly calls him the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. St. Paul teaches that we are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom he put forward as a propitiation or an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. St. John says the same. He says he is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Jesus makes peace between God and man by shedding his blood for sinners. He dies for sinners. That's what makes for peace. And when Jesus rises from the dead, we're given the assurance of that peace. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, he says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We have the resurrection of Jesus that stands as the assurance that God has fully received the blood of Christ as a peace offering. That's what Jesus calls the church to proclaim. After Jesus rises, he appears to his disciples, and what does he say? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see what happens here. Jesus declares his peace... And then he gives them the charge to forgive and retain sins. That's where our peace rests. It is in the forgiveness of sins that we receive in the gospel of Christ. It is the words of holy absolution. It is the preaching of righteousness and the forgiveness of Christ. It is in the reception of the body and blood of Jesus given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's in the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that we have in holy baptism. That's where peace exists. True peace with God cannot be found anywhere else. And this is where we are visited by Christ. This is how he establishes his lordship over us and shepherds us to the green pastures of heaven in the final resurrection. The only thing in all creation that will endure into eternity is that peace. Yet we often ignore it. We seek peace elsewhere. We seek peace in building for ourselves monuments and buildings or whatever that we cling to or programs that we think make us feel important. We also seek peace in maybe escaping from life for a little while as we seek peace in pleasure or our entertainment or the wealth that we think can free us from life's trouble and distractions. 
Or we go the other way and we seek peace in our politics, hoping that, hey, if my guy wins, we'll finally fix everything and we'll be free from all the troubles of the world. But worst of all, we seek peace by compromising on the word of God. We compromise on sin. We compromise on devotion or worship. As we say, my life would be more peaceful if I just ignore my children's infidelity. Or my life would be more peaceful if I just go to that entertaining megachurch where my kids won't feel bored during the service. Or my life would be more peaceful if I just go along with the insanity of the world around me. No one will bother me about it. My life would be more peaceful if that pastor wouldn't make me feel guilty when he preaches the law. My life would be more peaceful if everyone just accepted my lifestyle rather than trying to call me to repentance. My, my life would be more peaceful without all of this church stuff and the struggles that it brings into my life. And we grab onto these little deceitful promises of peace knowing that's not what makes for peace. The reason that there's no peace in this world is because this world is so sinful. We are so sinful. And sin is that thing that robs of peace. It tries to tell us there's peace in what we want. There's peace in my pleasure. There's peace in my own personal comfort. There's peace in my passions. But all that they sow are division and strife and inward and outward turmoil of every sort. And eventually, what do they do? They drive us to destruction. It's what drives Jerusalem to reject the gospel of Christ. It's what brings about the Jewish revolt and the subsequent disruption of the uh, subsequent destruction of the temple. It's what drives men away from God. It's our own sin that would bring us to a fate much worse than that of Jerusalem. It is our sin that would make us enemies of God and citizens of hell. In and of ourselves, we do not have the capacity for peace. We can't even properly define it. We cannot atone for our sins, and that's what makes the gospel of Christ so spectacular. Unworthy sinners are forgiven. And we are taken out of our own disruptiveness and incorporated into Christ so that what he is and has becomes ours. He takes the sin and the enmity, and we receive all of the holiness and peace. Such is the love of God that he would give his son to die for rebellious people like us. His desire is our salvation. And he makes every provision to ensure that we have it. He cleanses us from sin much like he cleanses the temple. As we look in the second half of our gospel reading, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. But then he enters Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He drives out the money changers and the merchants. Those who are making a mockery of the worship of God by giving the appearance that man could buy divine favor were driven away. He turns over the tables. He drives them out with a whip of cords. And in John's account of this event, the Jews were enraged at this event. They ask him, hey, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, what gives you the right to do what you just did? And Jesus answers, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's not talking about the stone structures around him or the wooden vaulted ceilings that comprise the building. He's speaking of his body. The temple of God was set in place to demonstrate God's presence with his people, and indeed God was present with his people. 
the hour of visitation had arrived, and Jesus had come to Jerusalem in his new and greater temple, the incarnate body of Christ, the Son of God. That temple would be destroyed. It would be crucified. It would die. It would be buried. And in three days, it would rise up again. Jesus would die and rise for the sins of the world. And not only that, he would add to his temple. He would continually build it up, making it more glorious, more wonderful. He would be the cornerstone upon which every other stone is laid. As St. Peter describes it, he says, As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, in the sight, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are members of the body of Christ. You are set apart as a holy habitation of God. And his visitation is made known to the world through the body of his church. You have the spirit of the Lord as the body of his church. You have his word as the body of his church. You have his promises, his absolution. And you share in his eternal resurrection and victory. You have been given true peace and that you are now God's holy habitation. The sanctuary of the old temple, it was called the holy place, and that inner room in the sanctuary where the ark was and only the priest could enter on the day of atonement, that was called the most holy place. And now, the most holy place is wherever God's people gather. You are the sanctuary of God's Holy Spirit. You have been declared holy by a righteous God who forgives sinners. And through the cleansing and washing that we have from Christ, we are no longer sinners in the eyes of God. We are holy children. We are members of the body of Christ. We are chosen priests and blessed stones who stand in the presence of God every day through his holy visitation to us in Jesus. You are the new temple of God in Christ. You are bound to spend eternity in the new Jerusalem of heaven on the day of resurrection. The old Jerusalem and the old temple serve the people of God to point to Christ. And as Christ has come, has died, has risen, has served as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, so now God has risen up his holy church to be the new temple that once again points the world to his son, who has died for the sins of the world. And here is where God proclaims his sacred peace. And so, my dear friends in Christ, live in penitent faith today, knowing that you, what you, have become in Christ. Trust in Jesus, and put away the sacred cows, along with all the false promises of peace, and cling to the means of grace. Cling to those things in which Jesus has said, I am here, and I am making peace for you. I forgive you. Because Christ does indeed visit his people, and Christ indeed does give peace. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for sending us your Son. As we live in this fallen world, help us to know the hour of our visitation. 
Cause us to faithfully receive your word and sacraments for the forgiveness of our sins so that we live in the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of Christ that does surpass all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith, the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may rise.